Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. So, as you know, getting the best out of people is really the art of leadership. And most of us learn what to do largely based on what works for me as an individual. And I assume, therefore, it works for you as another person. And however, we all know not everyone is captivated by the exact same tactics. And one tactic works in one place and it won't work in another. So the smarter strategy is actually to go back to the science. What is it that the data tells us is most likely to work? And that's what we're going to talk about today. But specifically, we're going to talk about how to succeed with people, how to create impressions with people, whether that's in the first five minutes, the first five hours, or the first five days. So my guest today is Vanessa Van Edwards, and Vanessa is the leading investigator at Science of People. She's also a best-selling author of a fabulous book, Captivate, the Science of Succeeding with People. Now, she uses her insights on how people work and her science-based framework for understanding different personalities to provide very tangible skills for how to improve interpersonal communication and emotional intelligence and leadership and a whole host of others. Millions visit her website, scienceofpeople.com, every month for her methods on these soft skills and the actionable frameworks that can be applied at business life but also in your daily life. And her groundbreaking and engaging workshops have taught thousands about these hidden dynamics. Now, she works with entrepreneurs and trillion-dollar companies like Google, Facebook, Comcast, Miller Coors, Microsoft, Penguin, Random House. I think you get the point. She's been featured on CNN, BBC, Fast Company, Inc., Entrepreneur Magazine, USA Today, and Today Show. And today, she's featured on Out of the Comfort Zone. Vanessa, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to have you. This is such an important topic, and I just love how you've taken what everyone has, how do I create the right impressions, win people over in five minutes, five hours, five days, and go back to science and say, what do we know from the science? But before we dig into the tactics, I just have to ask, why did you write the book? What drove you to go through all of this work to find all these scientific tips? Oh, gosh, it's so true. You have to have a really good motivation to write a book because it takes years and years. Um, you know, it's interesting. I've always loved self-help books. I've always loved self-development. I've always kind of wanted to activate potential in any way. But I found that a lot of the people skills books that were out there were written from one perspective. You know, the, the quintessential How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie, uh, The Charisma Myth, all these amazing books tend to be written by extroverts. And that's great because extroverts have a natural inclination towards people. But what happens is, and this is what I was finding over and over again in the books that I was reading, is an extrovert doesn't know how to do something that isn't natural to them because they already like people. And I was like, where is the book that one has the introverted perspective, or I would say the ambiverted perspective. Ambivert is someone who's kind of in between an introvert and extrovert, where I can't, when someone says to me, like, for example, in some of the books you hear a lot, be yourself or be more authentic, 
I never knew what those phrases meant, right? I would be like, be myself. And that was really hard advice. So I thought, thought to myself, is there a way to create a people skills book that's written from an introverted or ambiverted perspective that actually gives framework? So just like in math where you learn formulas and um, specific steps for solving problems, could we have the same kind of approach? Could we have a blueprint for conversation? Could we have a framework for relationships? And once I started digging into the research, I realized that, yes, we could, and there wasn't anything out there like it. So I was trying to fill a gap for my fellow, for anyone listening, my fellow recovering awkward people, my fellow ambiverts, my fellow introverts. <laughs> I love that, Vanessa. I have to tell you, I have a coaching client who says to me all the time, I'm a mathematician. Give me the formula for how to deal with this person in this situation, like the mathematic formula. A plus B yeah. plus C equals success. She needs to get your book. I'm going to give her, I want to remind her about doing this one. Um, you know, it's so I agree with, with you. You know, for extroverts, we can say just be yourself, but sometimes being yourself is either too much or not enough. So it's not even good advice for extroverts because, you know, my tendency is just to keep talking. That's not what everybody always needs. Exactly. And also, I, you know, there's this phrase that's popped up in popular culture recently that just kind of makes the hair on my neck stand up. It's this phrase, fake it till you make it. I don't know yeah. if you've heard that phrase recently. Yeah. Now, I like that. I think that the meaning behind it is well-meaning, right? It means, you know, even if you don't feel confident, try to act confident. And I, and I love that idea. But what's hard, even for extroverts, is anytime you're faking anything, people pick up on it. And when we're talking about being inauthentic or um, uh, not being real or not having real emotions, what we're talking about is that fake it till you make it. For example, the science points, finds this very, very clearly. So there was a study that was done by Dr. Barbara Wild. And what she wanted to know is, can we tell if someone is faking happiness, right? How often do you have a networking event or a conference and you're like, oh, I really just want to go home and watch Netflix. I really just want to go home and curl up in pajamas. But you're like, nope, got to go and build the business. Got to go and find some clients. So you go and you fake it till you make it, right? You put on a fake smile. You walk around. You try to talk about the weather. You do those things. So what Dr. Barbara Wilde looked at was she had participants. Um, smile, a genuine smile, and, and took photos of them. So think of something that actually made them happy and then took a photo of them. And then she had participants fake smile, so not actually feel happiness, but put on a fake smile, took a picture of them. Then she asked participants to look at those photos and rate those photos. Now, what was interesting is the participants who looked at the photos couldn't tell the difference consciously between the real smile and the fake smile. They looked the same to them on the surface. But when participants looked at the real smile, they caught the emotion. They actually felt happier. They used more positive words afterwards. When they looked at the, real, when they looked at the fake smile, nothing happened. In other words, if you show up and you're faking it till you make it and you're not genuinely happy to be there, you actually, it's much harder to make a first impression. It's much harder to be memorable because you aren't infecting people with any kind of emotion. Our faking it is actually a neutral or... Um, powerless way of being. And so that's the other reason why my goal is to get people to stop faking it until they make it and actually harness what's real. I, this phrase, I would agree with you, fake it till you make it, I think has one part that's true and one part that's absolutely bad advice. So if you're being asked to lead a team, for example, that actually knows more about the content that you know, faking it and pretending that you know stuff that you don't know is an absolute disaster. So I highly don't recommend that one. 
you're much better off to say to people, um, I'm not sure, I don't know. You tell me what you think. Much better strategy with people. At the same time, there's sometimes you have to do things when you're just not feeling very natural or very good at it. You still have to go ahead and do it. I don't know that that means fake it, but it does mean do it anyway. Get better at it, Mm. practice at it, and rehearse. So I love this with Barbara Wilde's research that genuine photographs of genuine smiles really impact other people in that people feel the emotion. And I think that's true face-to-face in incredible ways. Yeah, and also, you know, just if you don't feel like you're in the mood or you don't feel like you want to do something, it doesn't mean that you can't use tools and strategies to try to actually get yourself into a good place. So let's say that you have an event that you don't really want to go to, but you know that you have to go to. It's not that you are going to force yourself to stay home. It's more that you have a toolbox of things that you can do to get yourself into the right mood. So instead of saying, I'm just going to plaster on a fake smile and push through, I would rather you say, how can I get myself into the place where I can actually genuinely connect? Okay, I have this person I can call, my funniest friend. I have an inspirational YouTube playlist that I want to watch. I have a music playlist that gets me pumped up. I have a pre-success routine. I have, you know, like, there's tools that you can use instead of just faking it till you make it. So I want it to be the last thing on the list as opposed to the first thing on the list. All right. So it's the same. I'm always amazed when we talk about getting people in the mood and we look back at sports, um, especially, uh, I want to say professional athletes, Olympic class athletes. They always have a routine that they go into pregame to get them in the right frame of mind for the game, ready to go out, do, win, and be their best. It's the same thing for us, for anything that we're doing, getting ourselves in the same frame, mind, the right frame of mind. And you talked about this calling a funniest friend, have a YouTube list that you watch, have music that you listen to, have a meditation that you go through, run through a list of what you're going to say, how you're going to say it. I mean, there's a whole host of those. Yeah. And I think that we just need to be more purposeful with it. So I think that a lot of the times we think of work engagements as something we can prep for, right? We prep for meetings, we prep for presentations, we prep for negotiations. But for whatever reason, we decide that soft skills or people skills should just come naturally, right? You either have charisma or you don't. You either know how to have a good conversation or you don't. When actually that's not the case at all. It's very much like a skill. Just like graphic design or engineering, you can learn and hone your people skills just like your technical skills. So it's that we shouldn't just take for granted or hope that we have them naturally in the moment, but actually setting up systems for ourselves to be able to do it. And again, extroverts don't need to really do that as much. right? They, they usually can rely on their natural instincts, whereas a lot of ambiverts and introverts or recovering awkward people like me, uh, we need to use more tools, and that's actually okay. It makes us more purposeful. Great. All right. So you have this. I want to talk about the first five minutes. But before we get there, I, you know, out of all the things that you uncovered in the science of people, what are the two or three things that surprised you the most in writing this book? You know, I was really surprised to find that there were so my one of my big premises, one of my big hypotheses for the book was how do we learn from very charismatic people of all flavors? Right, So I would ask people all the time, who's the most charismatic person you know? And at first, and this was my hypothesis for the book, I thought they would sort of be the same kind of archetype and that the book would be more geared towards getting closer to that archetype. For example, the most typical, highly charismatic person that people think of is typically like the funny, impressive storyteller. 
they walk into a room and everyone wants to hear from them. Your eyes are drawn to them. They're typically attractive. They're uh, a little bit funny. They are great listeners. They're great at eye contact. And you kind of think about like the Bill Clinton, you know, that kind of um, archetype. That's what I thought we were going to be going towards. I thought I was going to be trying to do research and find science to show how can we be more like Bill Clinton (laughs) from a charismatic perspective. But what I actually found was that as I asked more and more people, who's the most charismatic person you know, they, they weren't introducing me to people who were like Bill Clinton. They were introducing me to all kinds of different people, um, quiet, powerful, contemplative introverts who weren't the life of the party. They weren't the booming personality, but they were incredibly present. They had this beautiful, quiet power about them, and they, and they drew people to them. I was like, wow, okay, this is one flavor of charisma. And then there was um, the amazing empath. There was someone who was very empathetic, and you just felt cared for and nurtured the moment you were in their presence. They didn't have to be the center of attention to do that. In fact, they often put you as the center of attention, and you're telling your life story to them. That was one flavor of charisma. And so what the book became was, instead of just trying to be one type, finding your flavor, so how do you find your flavor of charisma, and then how do you develop tools and strategies that leverage your natural social strength. So a big part of the book that I didn't expect was going to be as big of a a foundation was social strength. Everyone has different social strengths. I start off the book with a a PQ quiz where you rate your people skills, and I was really surprised to learn that different kinds of people do well in that quiz, but not everyone has the same social strengths. So, for example, you might be strong at storytelling while someone else might be strong at asking questions. You might be strong at um, presenting in front of a room where someone else might be strong at uh, teamwork and fostering collaboration. And so that was a really exciting new aspect for me to focus on for the book. So do any of these, um, uh, you call them flavors, social strengths, these skills, these archetypes work in all cases Or does the quiet, powerful, contemplative introvert work in some cases and not in some other cases? So there's something called the free trait theory. So um, uh, one of the big middle parts, middle chunks of the book is on personality. So I've always been one of those people who loves taking every quiz. You know, I know what Harry Potter house I am and I know what flavor of ice cream I am. You know, I just love free quizzes. And um, I, many years ago, wanted to look at the actual science behind some of those quizzes. You know, you hear about Myers-Briggs, and you hear about Enneagram and the colors. And the actual only personality test that's based in science, that's actually used as an academic measure around the world, is called the Big Five. And that's the only really verifiable, repeatable personality science. And to answer your question, this personality science applies to everyone. So everyone has these five traits. They just rank high or low in each of them. So they're mm-hmm. openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and eroticism. Stands for ocean. So everyone has these traits, but you're either high or low in them. And one of the big things that came up in the early parts of this research was, oh, my gosh, if you're high in, let's say, um, uh, if you're high in neuroticism, neuroticism is, is your tendency to worry it's how emotionally stable you are. If you're high in neuroticism, that means you can never be emotionally stable, right? You're doomed for life. And luckily, the researchers, as they did more research, found that, no, there actually is something called free trait theory. So free trait theory is the idea that, yes, we have our natural tendencies, introvert, extrovert, adventurous, homebody. 
But with our goals in mind, we can absolutely dial up or dial down depending on what we need to do. The, the quintessential example of this is Jackie Kennedy. So Jackie Kennedy was uh, an introvert, very much a homebody. And because of her spotlight, she had to be extroverted in some cases and at some times. And her tour of the White House, which is one of the most extroverted things you could do. Could you imagine if you're a homebody, you're super private, you're introverted. You have the entire country stomping through your new house where you're supposed to explain every aspect of every room. I mean, that's a nightmare for most introverted homebodies. But she rose to the occasion. She made some soft jokes. She had some lovely stories. She spoke quietly and poignantly. That is a perfect example of free trade theory. So the answer is, yeah, we can absolutely use these in any and every situation. You just have to learn how to dial up and dial, up, dial down based on your personality traits and your goals. I was um, on a panel not too long ago with, uh, at Forte Foundation, and Carla Harris was part of the panel. And she said that it's, you know, there's so many different parts of our personality and that what you're doing part of what makes us who we are, not just the big five that you're talking about, but all the other qualities, and that what you learn to do is to emphasize one aspect of you and downplay another aspect of you to succeed with one executive or one committee or one client customer. Um, it's the same idea. It's the notion that I don't give up who I am. I just dial up or dial down. Yeah, exactly. And that... And that doesn't mean faking it. And that's, this is the biggest difference that I want, I want people to feel when they're reading my book or they're out in the world using these tools that they, who they are works for them. That you don't have to change who you are to be liked. You don't have to change who you are to be memorable. And that if you're u- using your natural strengths, you're just maximizing a certain part of you. You're being your best self. And that is very different than faking it. It's a very different motivation, a very different feeling. It means that you're accepting you for who you are. You're just optimizing. Okay. I like that one. All right. So if I come back to the question that I asked, wow, that's an incredibly interesting um, uh, story there. If I come back to the question I asked you, what was most surprising? And you said there's no single archetype for what makes for a charismatic person. There are multiple different things. And that each of us can be... Um, it's not about faking it till I'm making it. It's about dialing up the best part of ourselves in the circumstances, getting our mindset to actually perform in that particular moment. So one more. What else was surprising to you? Um, I think that I used to believe, and one of, the, one of my favorite questions to ask people whenever I host dinner parties, I love doing dinner parties where I ask one really kind of soul-challenging question. Um, And one question that I ask is, um, what's something that you used to know but no longer believe? In other words, what's a time that you changed your mind? And I think that one of the other big surprises about the book was something that I thought I knew. I thought I knew that there were people who were exciting and led exciting, amazing lives, and there were people who weren't exciting, who were leading boring, simple lives. That is 100% not true. Every single person has something fascinating about them. And now I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm shouting this from the rooftop, which is every person you interact with has something fascinating about them. It could be a story. It could be a side hustle. It could be a personal passion. It could be an idea. It could be a way of thinking. And that really surprised me because it gave me a different kind of motivation 
for getting to know people and finding stories for the book. Every chapter in the book has an anchor story. And those stories came from really unexpected places. Yes, I definitely went to um, highly successful people. I have some very successful, uh, familiar, famous names you'll know in the book. But I also went to people who would have never heard of and probably have never heard of. And they had really fascinating secret stories as well. And so I think that what's really important for us to think about is going into interaction and thinking, how can I get to know the interesting thing about this person is one of the most powerful ways you can go into any interaction because you're assuming the best in them. You're assuming that they have something secretly amazing. All you have to do is uncover it. That's a very, a much better motivation than, I wonder if I can get their business. I wonder if I should get their card. Why are we talking? How's the weather? Right? It's a very different kind of orientation for conversation interaction. Okay, but now what if I'm sitting there saying to myself, but there's nothing interesting about me? Oh, if, there's, if you think there's nothing interesting about you, it is your job to change it. So if you are sitting there thinking, I'm boring, <laughs> I'm living a life that's not interesting, what I would encourage you to do is something that I call, it's called a learning bucket list. So I know there is something interesting about you. We just have to figure out what it is. So what I would highly think about is make a list, sit down with a, a big piece of paper and a pen, and think of what are all the things you want to learn in your lifetime. So most people think about a bucket list, and bucket lists are great, but they can be a little bit intimidating, right? Like if you look at my bucket list, I have ridiculous things on there, like go to sorbet school in Italy. You know, I'm a new mom. There's, there's no way that in the next 20 years I'm going to be going to sorbet school in Italy. Love the idea. Love the idea. But I look at that on my list, and it makes me feel sad. It doesn't encourage me. So bucket list items are often so big that it takes you years and years to work on them. What I would rather you do is something that you can actually act, activate right now. So maybe a subsection of your bucket list is your learning bucket list. What are all the things you want to learn in your lifetime? And this could be everything, anything from making sushi to learning how to garden to learning Spanish to um, uh, learning about my daughter it can be anything. I want you to think of the skills, the tactics, the languages, and then I also want you to list out the different ways that you could do that. So as small as getting a Spanish app or as big as getting a certification, and pick the ones that you can start working on right now. That makes you instantly interesting. Anyone who wants to learn something has a growth mindset, good old Carol Dweck, if you know her research. Yeah, yeah. you think about learning something, you switch into a growth mindset, and that makes you very interesting. Great. I love that one. What a simple thing to do. Even if all you could do is to say to people, look, I'm really interested in learning about how to make sushi, for example. Have you ever taken a course? You did. I mean, already we have a conversation that's at least an interesting conversation. I like that. So create a learning bucket list. Yeah, and by the way, it gives you something to talk about, right? So you can say, you know, I'm, I'm taking this sushi class or I'm thinking about taking this sushi class or do you like sushi? The other best question you can ask someone, even if you do nothing on your learning bucket list, you just sit down and make it. Just that gives you 20 things to talk about. You can talk about wanting to learn everything and then you can also sit with people and ask them, what's on your learning bucket list? What are you learning right now? What classes are you taking? Have you ever learned how to cook? What's a new skill you just picked up? So even if you don't do a single thing on your learning bucket list, it still makes you more interesting with all the things you can talk about. Okay, I'm inspired to go do this for myself. I don't think I have a boring life for the record for anybody listening in on this one. I think it's quite the opposite. But it sounds like a really interesting thing to do. I'm going to go do it. 
Okay, tell me, I want to focus a little bit about this first impression thing. So again, in your book, you write about how to you know, manage the first five minutes, how to win people over five minutes, five hours and five days. So it's a lovely framework. But these first five minutes, I don't think we think about that. So, you know, how do we go? I know you can't tell me everything in about the first five minutes, but just give us one or two tips about how to make a really good first five minute impression. Yeah. So first impressions are interesting because... Science is very clear on them, that they are permanent, they are immediate, and they tend to be accurate. And what I mean by accurate is we're actually shockingly good at speed reading someone. And I have a whole section, the entire um, middle section of the book is called speed reading. And that's because we're very good at it naturally. If you look at someone's um, headshot, just, just their headshot, you can usually accurately guess about 76% of their personality traits, meaning of that ocean, that big five that I talked about, you can just from their headshot probably guess if they're an extrovert or introvert, if they're adventurous or a homebody, if they're a good team player, if they're a worrier, and if they're organized. By the way, the hardest one to guess, can you guess which is the hardest one of those to guess? Neuroticism. You're right. Absolutely. We are not good at guessing if someone's a warrior or not. The other ones we're much better at, but the warrior is the one that we can often trick people on. So we're really accurate at it, which means that it tends not to change. So if you have a negative first impression of someone, um, it means that it's going to be really hard for them to change it for you. And that's, a, that's good news and bad news. Whenever I teach this to my students, I say, look, first impressions, the power of first impression is good news. Because before you learned about the power of first impressions, you were probably worried about your entire interaction. And I'm telling you, all you have to worry about is the first five minutes. That's it. That's way easier. Just five minutes. Even less exercise. Some science says it's even uh, less even a few seconds. So in that way, it's actually a lever. If you think about our good old physics classes, any, any physics fans listening, um, in physics, you use the lever to lift something really heavy. And that's exactly how I look at a first impression. If you have a good first impression, a really strong one, it acts as a lever for every future interaction. It makes every future interaction easier. If you nail the first five minutes, it makes your negotiation go better, your meeting go better, your relationship go better. It just makes it easier to lift up the rest of your interactions. And so in that case, it's actually good news. I think it actually it gives us more power because it's, it's, a, it's a hack or it's a trick into uh, making the rest of our interactions easier. Okay. Wow. All right. So mastering that first five minutes. All right. One tip. What's one thing to think about in terms of how to really nail that first five minute impression? So if I had to just give one, it's hard to pick your favorite. It's like picking a favorite child. Or two. I would, you yeah. know, with science, you have, you have so many favorites. Um, so what you have to remember is there's a lot of gatekeepers in that first impression you're trying to pass through. But the very first one is letting people know that your friend is not foe. So the very first thing you want to do with someone is disengage their inner spidey sense, right? When we first meet someone, just from a human, human behavior perspective, we're trying to gauge, is, someone, is this person safe for me, right? Are they, are they going to be safe for me? And so the very first thing you want to do is make sure that they know that you are safe, and the easiest, easiest way to do this, I did a whole TED Talk on this, is with your hands. That's a very unique thing. Most people think about eye contact or smiling. I actually think that our hands are the key, are the, are the windows to the soul. So oh. when we cannot see someone's hands, it instantly makes us more nervous. And we, we 
did a lot of studies on this in our lab. If you hide your hands behind your back or you have them in your pocket or you have them behind a purse or you have them behind a laptop or underneath a table, we surprisingly hide our hands more than we realize. The other person's brain has a very, very hard time relaxing. And that's because our hands are our deadliest weapons. That's where we carry weapons. That's where we reach out and shake someone's hand. It's if we're going to reach out and punch someone, that comes from our hands. And so we like to see someone's hands to see their intention. If we can't see someone's hands, it makes us just a little bit on edge. And I do this all the time in my presentations, and I wish I could see all of you and your lovely faces right now, and I would show you how this works. But the moment you can't see someone's hands, it's as if you're on a little bit more alert. And so the best thing you can do is lead hands first. When I walk into a room, I literally put out my hand for that handshake three to five seconds before I even get close to them to shake their hands, as if to say, friend, 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 friend. And so as much as possible, try to not only lead with your hands, but have them as visible as you possibly can in those first five minutes, especially when walking into a room or taking a seat or even hopping on video call. I do a ton of video calls. And you'll notice that in almost all my video calls and almost all my YouTube videos, I always, always have my hands in the shot for the first few seconds. And that's actually a little bit, a little bit odd. We don't usually do that with yeah. our hands, especially on video chat. But I have found that when I have my hand there and I kind of give a nice wave, hey, nice to see you, welcome to the video call, I've noticed I get more smiles on the other end. And that's an evolutionary instinct that we have that we just like to see someone's hands. That is, geez, Vanessa, that is a really powerful tip. And I thought I knew an awful lot about this whole body language thing, but it never, you're right. If we have our hands hidden, it's as if we're hiding some weapon. And it's such a simple thing to walk into the room and initiate that handshake as quickly as you can, even before I've gotten to the person. No awkwardness in waiting for them to stick out their hands. That awkward moment where you're like, are we going to handshake? Are we going to hug? And by the way, leading with one hand signals to the other person, not only that you're friend, not foe, but also that you don't want to hug. And that saves you from that awkward moment of, are we going to hug? Are we going to hug? Are we going <laughs> to handshake? Are we going to hug? So it also saves you. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great one. And especially for anybody who's used to being in and out of Europe where it's the kiss you know, one side, two side, three sides, um, depending on which country you're in. And, you know, as an American, I'm constantly awkward with, oh, what's the protocol here? What am I doing? Where does it go? Blah, blah, blah. So oh. the handshake is the easy yeah. save. You're right. I've gotten better at it with time. Okay, Vanessa, we're going to take a break. I know we could keep talking for a long time. So my guest today is Vanessa Van Edwards. The book is called Captivate, the Science of Succeeding with People. Highly recommend that you visit her website called Science of People. And as you can tell, she does fabulous um, workshops and YouTube videos and all sorts of things. We'll be right back. And when we come back, I want to talk more about how to uncover hidden emotions for one. We'll be back. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. How is your work-life balance? 
In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Kless. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Vanessa Van Edwards. She's the lead investigator at Science of People. And you can find her at scienceofpeople.com or you can capture her book, get her book, Captivate the Science of Succeeding with People. Um, I think we've just been talking about a whole host of things, one of which is don't fake it till you make it. Everybody has got something wonderful that you bring to the party, and it's a matter of dialing up and dialing down what's already there. I think that's a great story. And there's a wonderful tip about creating a learning bucket list about how to make yourself more interesting, even in the first couple of minutes. And maybe the thing that surprises me more than anything is the power of first impressions, that it is true we make a permanent, immediate, and accurate, for the most part, impression in the first five minutes and the secret for that is leading with your hands all right so Vanessa I want to turn to now to some of the deeper chapters where we move beyond the first five minutes and into the more five days and I'm really intrigued with this notion of how to uncover the hidden emotions and you know I know and I think everybody's listening to my show knows that emotions are a big part of our decision-making apparatus but I don't know how well we are at recognizing them in ourselves, let alone in somebody else. So help us out. What have you uncovered along the way? Yeah, you know, this right now is, is the science that hooked me. So when I was okay. starting my research, this was the content that I went, everyone should know this. This is the kind of thing is I feel that in schools we're taught how to read, and that is an essential skill. I think that every single person in school should be taught how to read people as well. Reading mm-hmm. emotions and reading language, they are both essential skills, and I actually don't understand why we don't have universal classes on reading people. And the reason for this is because the science is there. We just don't know it. So one, the first way that I discovered this was I was reading research on how emotions work, and we used to believe that emotions were more learned. 
especially how we show our emotions. We used to believe, or anthropologists used to believe, that a baby was born, looked at his mother or father's face, and mirrored or copied the facial expression. That when mom started yelling or getting angry, that's how the baby learned how to yell or get angry. And then they started to do more research, and they realized that congenitally blind babies, babies who've been blind since birth, make the same facial expressions at the same time as seeing children. And that was the first time where anthropologists went, wait a minute. If emotions are learned, if we learn how to make facial expressions, then how could congenitally blind babies be making these facial expressions? And that was the kind of tip-off into looking at the universality of facial expressions. And the pioneer of this work is Dr. Paul Ekman. That's where I got my training from. He's a wonderful researcher who has sort of led um, all the new discoveries on facial expressions. He has discovered that there are seven universal facial expressions that everyone, no matter their gender, their race, their culture, makes the same seven expressions when they feel these emotions. Now, the key okay. here is that they're called micro-expressions. So anyone can make a facial expression, right? I can widen my eyes and open my mouth and make that surprise, oh, surprise face. Anyone can make a facial expression. A micro-expression is one twenty-fifth of a second. It's incredibly fast. It's almost like a blip of your emotion. Those are what we can't control. So if you smell something disgusting, your face cannot help but make the disgust micro-expression. Once you learn these seven expressions, I I swear to you, it is life-changing. I, in my book, I talk about how once I learned these micro-expressions, it was like seeing the world in HD. Like, all of the sudden things I had never noticed before were right in my face. I couldn't believe how much more information I was getting behind people's communication. Yeah, wow. So... Can you just run through what these seven universal facial expressions are? You talked about surprise. Can you just hit what the other six are for us? Yeah, so it's surprise, fear, contempt, disgust, anger, sadness, and, of course, happiness. So um, these universal facial expressions, and then you talk about the micro-expressions, the one twenty-fifth of a second, and then once you learn to recognize them, you get all this additional information there. So, and you talked about this about the disgust. Can you give me another example and how what you've learned to see as a result? Just, I just need a little more concrete on this one. Yeah, so it's it's really hard to teach microexpressions, obviously, when you can't see my face. So I'll do my best at trying to explain um, how one of them works. So the really great thing about microexpressions is we are far more emotional than we think. So whenever I do, I do tons of corporate workshops. And whenever I talk about microexpressions, they always say, you know, I don't think I see a lot of intense emotions in my workplace. And then I begin to teach them and people go, oh, I've seen that before. So we're far more emotional than we realize. The nice thing about microexpressions is it allows us to spot miscommunications before they happen. And a very specific example I'll give you is the microexpression of contempt. So contempt is a really powerful, negative, almost scary emotion. And the reason for this is because it's one of the only emotions that when we feel it, it spurs a lot of disrespect and scorn. It's often accompanied with sarcasm. And so contempt, if you want to try this with me, is a one-sided mouth raise. So just raise one side of your mouth and a smirk. That's it. That's contempt. It's that one-sided mouth raise. We've done a, a research study on contempt, 
and we've had over 25,000 people try to guess what contempt is. This is the expression that most people get wrong. Most people think it's boredom or apathy, but actually it's the farthest from that. It's an incredibly negative expression. So why this is so powerful, what we've seen is, is that when you spot contempt early, it allows you to see a problem coming. Specifically, I had an HR director who took our microexpression training before she was doing all these interviews for corporate. And she said that she was in an interview and she spotted contempt on her interviewee's face when she asked a question about the company culture. So she asked, she said she asked something about, you know, how do you feel about our company culture? You know that we're a little different than the last company you worked at. And she saw that flash of that little mouth raise and thought to herself, hmm, that's interesting. Like, that could be a problem. But everything else in the interview went great. She thought, you know, this is a perfect candidate. He went on to interview with the CEO. Great, he was hired. Sure enough, about a month into the job, he was not getting along with other team members. He was having a really hard time at board meetings and did not want to go on the corporate retreat. And she went back to him and went right into asking questions about the culture, about the amount of work hours there were, the pressure that was in the office, how the communication worked. It was a much more streamlined communication that they used. And he said, you know, this is just so different from my last company. And, you know, I just, I don't think this is the right fit for me. And he wasn't the right fit for the position. She said, I wished I had paid attention to that first contempt to at least have asked more questions about it. So, what I think hidden emotions do is they allow you, they're little red flags, right? They're little flags that say, ask more about this. So if you see anger on someone's face, you know there is something there that is frustrating them, that is irritating them, and you want to get to the bottom of it right away. If you see sadness on someone's face, you know that there was something there that made them feel unhinged, worried, afraid. So it's these little red flags that I think everyone should be equipped on because it allows us to have more empathetic emotions. This is not about gotcha. You know, when I teach people skills in workshops, this is not about, ha, I spotted your contempt. No, it's actually about listening in, H- listening in HD and listening in surround sound. Not only are you listening with your ears, you're also now listening with your eyes. You're saying, no, I want to understand you and everything about you so much. I want to know the emotions that drive you. I want to know what worries you. I want to know what keeps you up at night. I want to know what makes you feel afraid so I can better help you. Right? The entire reason why I train sales team and HR teams on these expressions is so they can better serve their clients. They can make better hires, people who will actually love their job. They can spot things before they actually get bad. I think that that's what a microexpressions teach us. Okay. Wow. There is so much in that, Vanessa, to pay attention to. Um, you know, we see increasingly, your, your comments are reminding me about all the recent YouTubes about how to spot if somebody's lying or not lying. This is just much more powerful. Understanding that there was this micro moment of flash of an emotion that we can learn to recognize and then can try to explore and say, what was that about? And again, for the purposes not to call somebody out or embarrass them, but to actually be able to help them. What a great idea. Makes a ton of sense It's a game changer for communication, I think. And it's also a very different way of thinking about emotion and a very different way of thinking about communication. All right. Yeah, and it's true. Now, let me ask you about this. You know, so I, several people, lots of people that I deal with 
on the more introverted introverted side, they just don't give much away in their facial expression. Mm-hmm. So is it a matter of I have to listen really look really harder for that micro expression or is it true that some people just don't give much away? Uh, so there are definitely people who are less emotive. Now there's two sides to this, right? There are definitely people who um, so low neurotics, when you look at the personality spectrum, if you're high in neuroticism, it means you have more of emotional, you have more emotional responses to the outside world. So if you um, get an angry email and you're high neurotic, that upsets you for the entire day. You literally have a physiological greater response to that negative event. There are people who are also low neurotic. Low neurotics are much more emotionally stable. They don't have as, they don't have much of a reaction to external stimulus. So there's the first thing that will make you maybe not see someone's emotion as much is if they're low neurotic. They literally don't have as many emotional responses as others. So you're not going to see as much. Right? That's the first thing. And the second thing is you also might have someone who has trained themselves to be more of a poker face. Now, the, the interesting thing here is we can't control our microexpressions. So our microexpressions are so fast and so instinctive we can't control them. But they're much harder to spot if you have someone who has learned to keep their face incredibly still. I will also say Botox makes my life so hard. <laughs> it makes my life so hard because Botox literally physically numbs someone's face. So yes, there are definitely um, factors that make someone harder or easier to read. Great. All right. That makes a ton of sense. All right. I'm going to shift gears in just the few minutes that we're here. Wow. There's lots and lots more. So with respect, I'm just going to shift because I want to talk about motivating people. Completely different topic now. One is about reading the emotions. Another one is about motivating. What's your best insight or best understanding about how to begin to think about motivating people? Um, I think that with motivation, so I've, I've written a lot about motivation. And I've looked at a lot of the motivation research. And the motivation research is kind of surprising. So I think that in corporate, typically, my clients often go with their gut instinct on how to motivate people. So, for example, what are all the motivation tactics that are used in professional corporate world right now? Uh, raises, bonuses, promotions, perks, right? Like right. those are the, the four tools that every leader uses, right. every HR uses. It's built into the culture. However, the research shows that those things kind of work, but they're not the best worker. In fact, as soon as you offer raises or bonuses, people expect them. They get much less enjoyment and much less motivation out of them in the subsequent years. The single best way to motivate someone, can you guess what it is? Um, Praise. Praise is so good. Praise is second. Praise is second. The very first thing is progress. So Uh if you highlight how well someone has already done and how far they've already come and then praise them for it, that is the single best motivation strategy, according to the research. Now, this is really interesting, and it, I, I have a, a story that I shared, I think, on my YouTube channel. Um, one of the, just in practical, in practical terms, I go to the dentist every six months to get my teeth cleaned. And for my entire life, the first 10 minutes of every dental appointment goes like this. So are you flossing? Sometimes. Well, you really should be flossing more. I know. You know, if you don't floss, it's going to cause gingivitis and gum disease. It's very bad for you. I know. But if you do floss, it's so good for your gum health and it can prevent cavities. 
I know, I'll try. Okay, that's what my conversation with us was like for my entire life, for 30 years. And then a couple of years ago, I met my current dentist, who I absolutely adore, and she sat me down, and it was totally different. Here's what she did. She went in my mouth, and she took x-rays, and then she began to take measurements. Now, I had never had this done before. She was measuring the distance between the top of my gums to the bottom of my teeth, and she was measuring every single tooth. And then she showed me this chart, and she said, here are your gum measurements. Here is the average population. Look. On certain teeth, you're actually above average. I can tell that you floss. That's wonderful. I said, oh, well, you know, I, I, I only floss like once or twice a week. Once or twice a week is great. That is so much better than not flossing at all. In fact, that's better than most of the population. I'm thrilled that you're flossing once or twice a week. You're already so far along. I felt so good in that moment. And she goes, look. Here's, here's your teeth. You're already above average in these teeth. But look, these teeth are, are struggling. So you're already doing really great. If you can just add one or two more to the, the flossing you're already doing, it's going to make you leaps and leaps and leaps and bounds ahead. I will tell you, I now floss so much more with this dentist. And that's because every time I come in, she talks about the progress that I've made with my gums and my flossing. Now, that's just a very specific example of how she originally or every dentist I had before either threatened me with things that were bad that would happen if I didn't floss or tried to tempt me with all the positive repercussions, positive benefits of of flossing. Um, I think that my parents at one point probably offered me money to floss, which never worked. So the progress or saying that I was already doing well was one of the best motivators and I, I felt embodied in that science. And so what I encourage everyone listening to think about is how can you tell everyone that you work with that they're already doing a great job? How can you tell everyone that you're working with that they're already making such amazing progress? That's actually the way to think about motivating someone to do better. That's incredible. I mean, you're right. If we go back to everything that we know about um, in getting animals, for example, to do something, we know that we're much more likely to get animals to do what we want them to do when we, you know, praise them for moving in the right direction. Threats don't work, never have worked. Attempt of a reward at the end of it never works. But get you moving, sort it in the right direction, and reward you at that moment means you'll do in that direction more and more and more. It's how you get animals to turn around, or people for that matter. And here it is in this one. And what a simple thing. But geez, do we not do it very often. I know. That's what's so interesting about motivation science is it's counterintuitive. And so what I would say is a lot of the tips in my book are counterintuitive. There's some that are that you that you get and you'll say, Yes, I, I, I do that naturally or that makes sense. And there's some that you're gonna be like, Really? And that's because the science sometimes surprises us. We're very, very smart as humans, but we don't always know how we work. In fact we tend to overemphasize, over optimize and um, over overestimate our abilities. And so I think that I wanna surprise you because I think that we often don't know there are really easy secret things that we can do that we just don't realize. Yes. Well, that's the point of the book, isn't it? At the end of the day, this is about what does the science tell us? What are the tips? What's the formula? What's the pieces that everybody does every single time and you know it's going to be more effective? And that's how you have success with people. Exactly. I'm, I'm very addicted to uh, aha moments. So uh-huh. um, I've, I've, you know, I did a, a happiness 
workshop once and um, it asked for like, what are your happiest moments? And one of my favorite things to do in my job and my speaking events is when someone in the audience goes, oh, whew, yeah. no greater sound in the world for me. So if anyone's listening and you're doing, ah, I'm very grateful because I love those moments. Fabulous. I think there have been quite a few of them in this show. And it's hard to look back and say which ones are the most exciting. But clearly this notion of leading with your hands um, and showing that you're a friend, not foe, is something that makes a lot of sense to me. And just such a simple thing that's so easy to control that first impressions, those first moments. And now the um, – go ahead – Oh, I was going to say it's so easy, and the great part is it leads us perfectly into our next moment, which is the handshake. So hopefully everyone can do it. Absolutely. Easy, easy one to do. And I think the other thing, the one that's going to take a little while to learn, because I don't know as much about this one as we all clearly need to, is to come to understand the seven universal facial expressions, surprise, fear, contempt, disgust, anger, sadness, and happiness. And then to be able to spot some of those micro expressions, that one twenty-fifth of a second that you then want to question, ask more about, learn what that's about in order to be more helpful to the individual. I think that's amazing. All right, Vanessa, we have one minute left. Any one last tip you want to offer for people on any topic? Yeah. Yeah, I would. My it's more of just a, a a feeling that I'm hoping I can leave you with, which is my biggest frustration in my career. The thing that I think I'm going to spend my life's mission working on is talented, incredibly smart people who don't know how to share their talent and their smarts. Most of the people I work with are above average in every way. They are um, incredibly gifted. They are high achievers. They are very successful, and their biggest problem is being able to share that. So pitch their ideas, negotiate their worth, public speak, present. And so what I would say is you have some kind of talent or amazing idea or brilliance. And just as important as your technical skills is your ability to share it. So that when you meet someone, they really want to know about your talent. So that when you have an idea, you know exactly how to share it. And so what I would say is if you can spend just a little bit of time on how to share the talent, not only what the talent is, that will allow people to really see your worth, and that's what you deserve. I can't say it any better, especially for somebody who believes that the technical skills are only half the equation, and the other half of the equation is all this other stuff that puts us out of the comfort zone. Vanessa, what a fabulous show, the ability to share your talent. I love it. Um, Vanessa Van Edwards is my guest today. She's at Science of People, so and you can find her at scienceofpeople.com. The book that we've been talking about and that I highly recommend is called Captivate. The Science of Succeeding with People. And as Vanessa said at the beginning, this is how anybody, even those recovering awkward people, can learn to have a good first five minutes impression and a good first five hours impression and a good five days of interaction with people for the longer term. Vanessa, thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Pleasure. Thanks again. And join us next week for another episode in How to Get Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.